It is an indescribable joy to be with you and to be back with you in Colossians. So please turn with me again to Colossians chapter 2. And I was overly ambitious initially thinking, yeah, we, we, should, we can cover 9 to 15 and then it became 9 to 12, then it became 9 to 11. So today we're going to cover verses 9 and 10. <laughs> there is just so much here on Jesus Christ and His fullness that we are sharing in right now. So with that, I do want to, as, as just by a way of reminder and refresh our memories. I want to start back in verse 6, though. So Colossians 2, let's start in verse 6. And I do want to read down to verse 12. So the word of the Lord says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary, elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him... You have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Let's pray. Father, oh, thank you for inspiring this letter to and through the Apostle Paul, through to the church in Colossae, and Lord, to us today, for how we need so much to realize the fullness of Christ himself and all that dwells within him as our glorious Lord and Savior, and as our mediator, as our intercessor, as our high priest, as our elder brother, and all of his attributes that are so shared so wonderfully with the Father and with the Spirit. And Father, to realize too, help us, I pray, through the revelation, the illuminating work of your Spirit, to help us to know and experience, Father, to thrive in the fullness of Christ that is ours. Bless this time to the glory of your name. In Jesus' holy name we ask this. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> For Heritage Grace being a church active in evangelizing the lost and apologetics, we're very aware of all the, the multiple, multiple and varied ideals and approaches to what's considered spirituality from talking to people on the street, to college campuses, at our workplace, even in our families, seeing all the various temples and places of worship popping up that 
promote actually blatant idol worship. But what's more remarkable and shocking that even under the large umbrella of what is considered Christianity and even in some instances narrower under the umbrella of evangelicalism, there's an influx of what we could call Christ plus teachings of proposals that offer many roads or options, attempts to include all sort of basically fleshly idols and pursuits that somehow we can take along with us through the narrow gate. All of these under scrutiny and examination will prove to be just the source from the eye of men's minds and their lust, as Second Peter 3 talks about. With the idea that on our own, somehow we can seek some spiritual nirvana, some higher spirituality that might include Christ, that will lead to some type of heavenly realm. Amazingly enough, this type of oppression, this type of influx, this type of influence really began even back in Acts chapter 15, and it's what Paul and and Epaphras and the church in Colossae are faced with in this letter. We remember that Paul's writing to this what we believe to be a fairly young church, maybe about the same age as Heritage Grace, so that in mind. But what was brought forth by the gospel of Christ that Epaphras, the faithful servant, taught these people. And, but what is now in this church being influenced and, and impacted by this, this syncretism, this, this spiritual heresy. And it's in this heartfelt pastoral letter very doctrinally rich letter that Paul has written in response after Epaphras was coming to him to bring a letter but stopped in Colossae and found out what was going on and heard of this and went and sought out Paul in Rome to get his help to report what was happening because of his great love and concern and the wicked influences that were coming upon these dear brothers and sisters because blatantly, ultimately, it was blasphemy and satanic. And while the, the Colossian heresy was basically Jewish, it, it is not straightforward as the Judaizing legalism we see in Galatians. But it's a form of mysticism which, which tempted their adherents, those followers, to look on themselves as some spiritual elite. And neither was this heresy some blatant, abrupt, sheer paganism because it evidentially encouraged the claim that a fullness of God could be appreciated, but only by an adherence to these progressive, hierarchical, mystical experiences, which there was also some ascetic preparation due. But Paul's very powerful polemic here to such a claim is that the fullness of God is embodied only in Christ so that those who are truly united to him by faith have the direct access in him to that fullness. And we have no need to submit to any ascetic rigor, which the Colossian Christians are being recommended to practice with all its attendant spiritual dangers. And now, after having established both the sufficiency of Christ and Paul's commission, his prayer, his concern, Up to this point, he now turns in this major section, which actually begins 
from our sermon last time in verse 8, if you remember about four months ago, couldn't believe it was that long. That's all right. But from verse 8 all the way through verse 4 of chapter 3 in this section, Paul is going to argue in such a way, but not, not a direct frontal attack, but he's, he's using a language of the heretics, kind of a, a, a table-turning technique on them, to affirm the gospel and to show that their view, these false teachers' view, is insufficient, that Christ alone is sufficient. So after paring down the many verses I attempted to originally take on, we have two verses with one point. So easy outline. But what I'm calling overall the sufficiency in Christ, part one, our topic for today is the fullness in the God-man, Jesus Christ. So let me read verses 9 and 10 again for you. For in him... All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, you were also, I'm sorry, got ahead of myself. And in him, you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. So Paul is continuing from verse 8 here, his polemic thrust, to make it very plain that any human religious system or philosophy of these false teachers is not according to Christ. It is only and fully encompassed in the revealed gospel, which is that same faith that has been preached to the Colossians and to us, and really the only way of thinking and methodology for a believer who is truly seeking the reality and the fullness of the Christian life for it cannot be found in no one other than the person of Jesus Christ. And any way of thinking that is not after Christ or in a presuppositional beginning with Christ is wrong, for it is in him, in Christ, is where we must begin, because in him, as Paul says, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. It begins and ends in Christ. We first saw a while back in chapter 1, verse 19, where Paul also says that it was the Father's own good pleasure for all the fullness, this fullness of the deity, of his essence, to dwell in the second person of the Trinity as he is veiled in human flesh. Realize this, consider this, this is the whole fullness. He uses the Greek word pan. It means all, all the fullness, not, not just a single attribute of many of the divine properties of the Father or partial possession of God's glory. It's not that Christ merely possesses the will of God or simply the mind of God, but the entire assemblage of all in existence and character that constitutes divinity. If I can paraphrase John Eady there. All that God is, is found in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his divine nature, which is one of his two natures of being fully human and being fully God. And it's in Paul's argument here that he serves, that serves as a basis for the application to the very particular needs of the Colossians 
and for each member of the body of Christ, locally and universally. And it's in this brief and profound argument against the heresy in verse 9 that Paul lays out the glory of the dual estate of Christ, that hypostatic union of our Lord. The fullness of deity, the very essence of God himself, dwells in this man that is in fact truly human. The exact Christ carried, he was, he has, he was, he is the exact physical makeup that each of us shares. Not diluted, not hybridized as if he had some supernatural, superhuman strength in the physical sense, but like us, flesh, skin, bone, blood, muscles, eyes, ears, nose, mouth, limbs. He knew hunger, he knew thirst, he knew pain, he knew weakness, he knew suffering, and he knew death. But perfectly united in his person is the fullness of deity. This union that is so complete, so perfect in his person, that nothing is lacking in its intrinsic to his humanity or his deity. Now, Christ's humanity could not contain omnipresence or omniscience, for he himself had to learn and to grow in wisdom and stature as part of his humanity. And if he would not be truly human, he could not have borne God's wrath in our place as a suitable sacrifice on the cross. However, in his divine nature, united in this same person, he contained omniscience and omnipresence of deity. Otherwise, he would not be the God-man and not Christ. Each nature within this person retained each unique property. And this fullness of deity, what's called the pleroma, the fullness of deity, he carries the same idea that Paul speaks about to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 5.19, where it was, it said, Paul says that God in Christ, it was God in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So what does this mean for the church in Colossae, and, and how did this help them guard against the influx and argue against the influx of this false teaching that was trying to, to draw them away or to add to Christ or to diminish Christ? Well, the false teachers also believed in a pleroma, a fullness. What they professed was was somehow found in the the divided expression among the the various emanations of these spiritual beings that they sought to worship somehow, and in somehow ultimately reaching a higher level of spirituality. Christ did not quite fully contain all that was necessary for them for ultimate spirituality, so They had to rely on and believe in these intermediary steps, these spiritual intermediaries, to somehow add to Christ what they thought was lacking. However, we must know that the only true fullness, the only pleroma of deity found in a human form, a full human form, is only found in Christ. And for us, this provides such a glorious communion that is with the entire Christ. The fullness of the triune God, because of his omnipotent divinity, perfectly united to his now glorified humanity, is to whom we are a part of. We are connected. 
And as we're going to see in the next verse, we are by grace and through faith in him. We are brought into what Paul says earlier, that we have been rescued. We have been transferred into the kingdom of his son. And now we are enabled. We have been given the ability by grace to commune with the whole person of the glorified Christ through prayer, through reading, through studying his word, to know that he understands our weakness. He understands our frailty. He fully experienced what we experience each and every day. And we can share in this fullness of his being, of having him abide in us through his spirit. And furthermore, this, this dwelling or this dwells, katoikeo, has, has a present tense meaning. What does that mean? Well, it's a continuous eternal meaning, something that is going on for an eternity, this dwelling. It means a, a settling down, a making an abode, a being at home, so that our great Savior, our Lord, our mediator, an intercessor never changes in any of his humanity, always able to sympathize with us because of this. And he also never changes in any of his divine attributes. He is always full of grace, full of mercy, full of truth to us and for us, always able to sympathize, as I said, with our weaknesses, our struggles, and is truly able, only able by his spirit to provide that grace we need and our help in our time of need. And it is his desire to dwell in the garden of our heart, in our new man. We also can understand and see in Old Testament scripture that there was a, a symbol of the presence of God found in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle of the wilderness and in the Jerusalem temple. But it is only in the body of Christ, his human body, do we find deity in its fullness. In the plenitude of attributes dwelling in reality and substantially as we understand this directly from the language that Paul uses here. Somaticos, in bodily form. The very manner in which the fullness of deity dwelt in the person of Christ from his birth through eternity, in which exactly what John reveals to us in John 1.14, the word of God became flesh, and he dwelt among us, he tabernacled among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this is the reality, the glory of the incarnation of Christ, to be brought in a per, into a permanent communion experience and sufficiency for all those who believe in him. Just a paraphrase on Calvin's commentary on this verse was just incredible. Because of the very fullness of God, the full essence of God is found in the incarnate Son of God. Then if anyone who does not find true contentment, true satisfaction in Christ alone, must then desire something or someone better 
are more excellent than God himself. What compares to Christ? How does he measure up in our hearts and our desires? Now Paul continues this this argument, this thought, into the first part of verse 10 where he says, And in him you have been made complete. Paul carries from the reality of the fullness of the deity that dwells in the exalted Christ and he follows into the infilling of the Colossian believers and for us, for we have been filled in him. Is that a reality in your daily walk, in your daily thoughts, in your meditation? We have been filled in him. The significance and the power of this statement, this crowning of Paul's argument, is, is made and revealed to us. This, this is just the beauty of the language that God intended to use in the Greek, the Greek and the word order used by Paul. We see the beauty and the glory of the inspiration here. It identifies the incorporation or the union of believers with Christ. For it is in union with Christ alone that the believer possesses this fullness as it is already. It is for us to both realize now and to continue to live in. And we know this because Paul, by the Spirit, as I said, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he uses a different application on the word complete or fullness for verse 10. Verse 9 was a noun for fullness. And here in verse 10, he uses this participle, pleromenoi, which rather than pleroma, pleromenoi, excuse me, has a, a perfect tense. Again, meaning a continuing state from a prior action. Something that has already occurred is continuing in our lives. And for us as believers, this is the result of having been filled. They are eternal. But also, it's in a passive voice, which means this is the result of a work done outside of us to ourselves, a work of God himself on our behalf. Nothing that we could conjure up, nothing that we can strive for in our physical realm, in our own thinking, and especially in the philosophies of these false teachers or any of the philosophies we see today. It's only found in Christ. Now, Paul is not suggesting here that we also have the fullness of deity as Christ. That's not what his intention is. For Christ alone has the dual nature. And neither does Paul give us any detailed specifics or descriptions of what this fullness for the believer is in this verse. But we can look to other scriptures and see this fullness is received, this is given to us in the mercy of God, in the grace of God, in the love of God, in the provision of God of God, in the patience of God, in the kindness of God that even initially leads us to repentance. It's his kindness. This is from his fullness to us. But it is only by the salvific work of the Spirit that we are placed in Christ, in his death, in his resurrection, and it's only through this work of the grace and mercy of God that we are able and introduced into this fullness of Christ. The Gospel of John reveals one aspect of this fullness that we've received. In in John 1.16, it says, For his fullness we have received, 
and grace upon grace. We as believers have received out of the Word's fullness the person of Christ, that is his fullness. We've all received the grace in place of and in addition to the grace already given. There's from Christ a freeness of his grace given to us. There is a fullness of the grace that he gives us because it is heaped upon us and one another. And there is a fulfilling work of this grace for it's to be exercised within us and by us in our actions towards others. It is for, it is for us a grace in truth and in reality. It is both, as the Puritans call it, experimental and experiential in our lives. Peter gives us some additional insights, and I'd like for you to turn with me here to 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter gives us insights into this fullness we have received through this divine power and the granting by God himself. 2 Peter 1, just verses 2 to 4. Peter says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. The fullness, the fullness of ours is in Christ. This, this granted divine power, this spiritual power given to us by God never fails. Believers may distance themselves from it because of sin or indifference or simply fail to minister it and use what is readily available to them by faith, but from salvation into eternity, God has granted this fullness and power and it pertains to each and every aspect of our lives, not just on Sundays, not just for six hours or seven hours here, Monday morning, six o'clock when you get up, this fullness is there. It is available. It is for equipping us in our sanctification. It is for mortifying remaining sin. But realize that in view of this reality, the Lord holds all believers responsible to obey his commands in Scripture. For Peter says that through these precious and magnificent promises of God, we are given a a present certainty as well as a future reality that emanating from the effective salvation of God, we receive everything. Yes, everything relating to life and godliness and are now possessors of God's own eternal life. And by our partaking of this life, just as we came and partook of the bread and the cup, this partaking of this life from God through grace, we are freed from sin. We have escaped the effects of sin, which is death, and that corrupting, worldly, moral decomposing that is driven by sinful lust. And in light of these precious and magnificent promises, 
I, I, I challenge you, I, I ask you to go and do just a quick word study on the phrase, in him. And we find that through this reality of our being in Christ and granted his fullness of grace and power, we may truly experience true life, true peace, true joy, what a true refuge is, what a true delight and hope is, what glory is all about. And in him we find no unrighteousness. There is pure righteousness in him, pure holiness. And in addition to these scriptural truths, Paul was asserting again and again these alreadies of salvation as a necessary reminder for all Christians, but also over and against those who were interested in the heavenly realm and who promoted these false notions about them by believing they could, again, be, be reached by these, the worship of these intermediaries and through obtaining some elitist knowledge of higher spiritual truths that were all apart from Christ. There is, there's no moving on from, there's no going around, there's nothing above Christ as some means to attain any other real spiritual fullness or some deeper spiritual experience. And it is safe to say along with Paul here that in all reality, the reality of our lives, we can find no other means, we can find no other teaching, spiritual or otherwise, no other national, political, social, economic pursuit in our day and age that will enhance and much less add to any fuller spirituality that will lead to the one triune God. And in spite of all the popular beliefs and pluralism and all the ecumenical efforts, there are not to be found many options or roads that lead to eternal life or a concept of heaven that matter. There is only one way to life through Jesus Christ, and in the way through him is found this fullness, this sufficiency, this abounding grace, necessary, so very necessary in our sojourn in this world. Because of who he is and the fullness of who he is, his deity, the, the essence of God dwelling in the Lord Jesus Christ, when you become one with Christ through faith, you are made full. That is, we are made complete through This is the salvific work of God. With the right thinking and understanding of who Christ is then, the means that leads to growth when it comes to spiritual growth, true spiritual growth when it comes to maturing in the faith, when it comes to walking in a manner worthy that is worthy of our calling that pleases the Father, when it comes to persevering in the way in the Lord Jesus Christ, then our only right methodology is understanding who Christ is and understanding who we now are in him. And it is believing that being in the Lord Jesus Christ means we have received everything we are ever going to receive and everything we will ever need for life. There is nothing more. I don't want anything else. In Christ, we receive everything we are going to get and need. 
Just think about this. I was pondering this, thinking about Paul while studying this letter. What a great example, as we heard last week, Pastor Milo's sermon, to follow all his years of service and ministry, his letters, his sacrifice, his obedience, his testimony. Think about the thief on the cross. Who was closer to Christ? We need to be careful what we say here or what others say about, I don't feel real close to Christ. I don't feel like he's near. Because if we are in Christ, if we have been saved and redeemed, bought by him, adopted by him in his family, we are in him. For us to be close to God is to be close to be in Christ and to be close in him. And as believers, we are as close in this life as we are ever going to get. Think about that. We're not going to elevate to the new higher spiritual plane. Yes, our our relationship with him will deepen. Oh, absolutely. As we explore his word and, and just unfold as we're doing his attributes and enjoying him and worshiping him, our heart is enlarged in faith and in praise and in worship of him and enjoyment of him and of seeing him for who he truly is. But he's given us everything we need right here. So seeing who God is, who Christ is, who we are as needy vessels, but who we are now through the work of Christ, it is only in Christ that we find the heart of a brother to love you and the arm of a God to protect and bless you. Amen? Do we see this? Do we understand this? That we have been made complete in Christ. All the fullness dwells in him, and we have been filled in him. So when we become one with the Lord Jesus Christ, we are united to all that belongs to him. And Paul concludes, and we'll conclude with the rest of verse 10, but not in any insignificant way, for he says, For he, Christ, is the head over all rule and authority. And while Paul is drawing attention from the language used in in chapter 1, verse 16, where Christ himself is the creator of all thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities, Paul is also creatively exhorting the church that there is no need to pay homage and respects to any other principality or power that are being purported as a means of attaining any kind of fullness. The only one in whom they are now complete is the very Lord and master of all created beings. This is true because we can glimpse forward to chapter 2, verse 15, and see that this work has already been accomplished on the cross. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities. He has made a public display of them, having triumphed over them. They are ridiculed to the hilt. And just as Christ is the head of his body, the church, this church, think of that. He is the head of our church. He governs all that we do here. Praise God. Boy, you don't know what a relief that is on my shoulders, brothers and sisters, that we can go to him. 
Him being both the animating and directing force of his redeemed. So is Christ the source of all the spiritual being's existence. And with this authority, he alone ultimately determines what all of these spiritual forces may or may not do. Who do we have to fear? Do they continue to exist? Yes. And are they still inimical to man and his interest on earth? Yes. They challenge us. They threaten us. They want to destroy us. They want to see our faith destroyed. But we know from promises in Romans eight thirty-eight to 39, but we also know that their defeat is inevitable. We have this promise from God through Christ in 1 Corinthians 15. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. When he has abolished all rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy will, that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjections to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself who will also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. With Christ as the source and head over all rule and authority in the spiritual realm and the created realm, there's nothing, absolutely nothing for the believer to fear. For they are as we for they are as we are as believers in him, the one in whom all the fullness of deity has come to reside. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are your truths. These, this is your word. This is your reality made manifest to us through your Son. I pray, Father. Oh, Lord, I pray for each and every one of us, myself included. Oh, God, that our hearts would be enlarged to the reality of the fullness.